Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Three Creeks. My name is Joel. One more time for Ashley and the decision that she made. I told Chase, we're not moving the tank. I said, we're, we're just leaving it there. There's no need to move it. And uh, as Lisa mentioned a few minutes ago, we have a few other people that are set to be baptized in July. And uh, man, I just want to encourage you that if, if you're sitting there and thinking, Man, I want to take that step. I feel like God has put this on my heart. A lot of times we can make this Christianity thing a lot more complicated than they even did in the Bible. When everybody was asking Peter, after Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter, what are we supposed to do? He said, repent, believe, be baptized, period. (laughs) That was it. it. It really is that simple. Repent, turn from your sin, believe, believe in Jesus and be baptized. And so if, if you're a person who uh, you haven't been baptized, but you're a believer in Jesus, we want to celebrate that with you. And if you maybe have been baptized before, like Ashley mentioned on her video, but you want to do it here at Three Creeks, you want to recommit your life to Christ, we would love to do that with you. Uh, a lot of times when someone says, you know, my, I was baptized as a kid, my parents had me do it, uh, or, or whatever, the church I grew up in had me get baptized as a kid, am I allowed to do it again? And the answer to that question, of course, is yes, because really what those people were doing when they baptized you as a child was they were essentially uh, dedicating you unto the Lord. That that was a prayer for you that you would grow up to follow Jesus. And so when you get baptized as an adult, you're essentially saying to those people, your prayers have been answered. I'm choosing this. As a person, I'm choosing to put my faith in Jesus. And so uh, we've had a chance to celebrate with lots of folks who are getting baptized as adults for the first time. And, and so if, you're, if that's you, and if this just kind of gets your heart going, Lisa eloquently shared with us, text, get dunked to 97,000. And I'd love to get to have a conversation with you about that step of faith. We're back in the book of Ephesians. We're coming towards the end of the, the book. We're coming towards the end of our series. Ephesians has six chapters. And we are in chapter 6. I look back this week at some of my notes from week 1. I was uh, feeling sentimental, reminiscing a little bit. And I could sense, as I, as I read the words that I wrote on January 8th or 9th, whatever the first Sunday was, as I read it, I thought, man, I was so full of hope. I was so full of hope that this would help our young church spiritually mature. I can remember sharing week one that uh, the recipients of this letter, the Ephesians living in Ephesus, the Christians, they were young Christians living in a popular city. Remind you of anybody? They were facing cultural pressure to conform and say, no, that, that isn't important to remain true to. We, we probably should accommodate some of these other beliefs. They were facing pressure. They were meeting in a school. Literally, just like us, and they needed to grow up in their faith to handle what Paul knew was coming their way. And I was so full of hope that in the same way that the Ephesians grew up through this letter, that Three Creeks as well would grow up 
2,000 years later, I remember sharing with you that spiritual maturity is a combination of both good theology and good works, and one without the other is not maturity. Good theology, we all know somebody who has good theology, who can, who can quote this and tell you all about it, but their lives don't show that they really believe it. They know the stuff, but they don't do anything with it. And on the other hand, if we're just kind and thoughtful and generous, but it's not connected to the person of Jesus and the truth of the Bible, then that isn't spiritual maturity either. You got to have both. A lot of the messages in this series, the first half especially, were, were very theological in nature. It was about the stuff that we should know as Christians. And then in this second half, after Easter and up until now, a lot of the messages have been very, very practical, stuff that we should do in light of the fact that God sent Jesus for us. And based on the conversations that I've had the privilege of having, just witnessing different things happening in our church over the last five months, I can just tell you that my hope in week one, it wasn't, it, it has come to be that truly we as a church, I believe, are growing up in our faith and we're going to need to keep doing it. And, and so for that reason, I mean, I just can't tell you about a series that we've ever done at our church that I think has been more important and timely and impactful than this one. So let's dive into Ephesians 6. We're not quite done, but let's get a little bit closer to the finish line. First, I, I have to read you the three verses that I, or excuse me, the four verses that we walked through last week, because today's message, uh, well, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you remember what we talked about last week. This is what Paul writes to the Ephesians as he's coming to the end of his letters, of his letter to his friends. Finally, Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, stuff you can see. It's against rulers and authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Last week, we highlighted that Paul is talking about the presence and power of an active spiritual world, cosmic powers of darkness, forces of evil that we cannot necessarily see, but that doesn't make them any less true. In fact, think about it. We believe in lots of things that we can't actually see. I tried to explain that we're in a spiritual battle, but it's not one that is flesh and blood. But that doesn't mean the battle isn't real. I explained, this is important, that Satan, God's enemy, is not after your recognition. He doesn't care if you know who he is or where he's hiding or what he's getting you to do. He doesn't look for your recognition. He just wants your destruction. If you're feeling tempted to make a poor decision... If you, if you sense chaos in your life, if you're starting to believe lies in your head, this is all the work of Satan and his demons, but he doesn't care if you know where it's coming from. We have an enemy. And I know, I know, as Christians, we're not supposed to have enemies. In fact, the Bible even says we're supposed to pray for our enemies, but this is important for us to understand that from the moment that you make a decision to follow Jesus, if that's something that you've done, if you have 
If you have declared Jesus is Lord, I believe in him, he is my savior, I'm going to follow him. If you declare that, then you are, you are creating, you are, you are essentially gaining an enemy in that moment and simultaneously planting a target on your back. The reason that Satan hates Christians so much is that they used to be his friends. The reason that Satan hates us so much is that we used to be his friends. His goal is for us to join him in his rebellion against God and accompany him to hell. And if that seems extreme, whoa, that it's just more intense than I anticipated to think about when I came into church this morning. You just need to know that there was a day that each one of us was on a dark path accompanying him and we have abandoned him and made a decision to follow Jesus and said that is why he hates us I I had a friend his name is Bill he's actually a mentor of mine he told me in March that he was going to go be traveling to Ukraine I said Bill there's a war going on there you can't go to Ukraine is it safe are there areas of the country that you're not going to be threatened and if, if, if you had a loved one or a family member or friend say, I think I'm going to go take a vacation to Ukraine, you would say, what are you doing? There's a battle going on there. Don't put yourself in harm's way. But then if I think about it, just because I can't see the, the battle that's going on for my soul every day in Guyana, doesn't make the battle any less real. Like We don't think about that battle because we can't see it as well as the one in Ukraine, but it is of the same intensity, and actually it has even more dramatic effect because we're talking about the eternity of our souls. C.S. Lewis, in Screwtape Letters, listen to this. In Screwtape Letters, which is a book that I highly recommend you read, it, it, it's about, it's, it's satire, and it's about a, a head demon named Screwtape who writes to his nephew, a sub-demon named Wormwood, and it's, it's strategies on how to get Christians off their game. It's incredibly insightful to read. One of the things that C.S., that Screwtape writes to Wormwood about their enemies, the Christians, he says, indeed, Wormwood, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, in other words, he doesn't want you to know that you're on that path. He, doesn't wa- he, he wants you to think that the road is safe. It's the road that everybody's on. Isn't it the one that we should take if everybody's doing it? The reason hates, Satan hates us so much is that we used to be his friends. I, I, can't, I can't move on without reminding you of Ephesians chapter 2, which is the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, if you've never read the Bible, if you want to know what this story, what this whole Bible is about, I think Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 summarizes it the best in one place. And it says, it, it talks about our natural state when every one of us was born. We were dead. We were dead in our sin and our transgressions and our rebellion against God. Every one of us was dead. That's why when somebody says, well, I've always known God, I've always believed in him. No, you didn't. No, no, you didn't. We were born dead. And we like to think of it as if we were, it's almost like we're drowning in the ocean and we're trying to swim and the boat's coming. And if we just hang on long enough and do well enough and swim well enough, well, then the lifeguard Jesus will come and save us. 
That's what we like to think because we like to think that we swam a little bit. But the truth of the Bible is that we were just belly or face down, bloated, floating in the water, just dead. And Jesus in his love for us came and breathed new life into us. He gave us new hearts and new lives and brought us back to life. Friends, we were, we were born obviously physically alive. We're breathing our lungs, our hearts. We're born physically alive, but we're born spiritually dead. And it is only Jesus Christ that can breathe life into a dead body. And he brings us back to life. That's what Ashley's talking about. When she says, I'm giving my life to Jesus, she's, rec she's recounting the moment that God stepped into her life and said, new life, new heart for you in Christ. Because of this transformation and because of this hope that we have, we have an enemy. And up there in verse 10 that I just read, the first word is finally. And that's not like Paul saying, well, just I'm getting to the end here, so finally. He, he doesn't write in conclusion so that the Ephesians will kind of tune back in. Paul probably has something important to say here at the end. That's not why he says finally. A better translation of that word, in my opinion, is the word henceforth. In other words, what this means is that between the two arrivals of Christ, between Christmas, you know about this one, and the second coming of Christ, between these two moments, there will be no ceasefire. There will be no treaty. There will be no white flag. It's a war. It's a battle. Henceforth, Christians, put on the armor of God. Paul isn't mentioning this just to pique our curiosity and get us to be enamored by spiritual things. He's sharing it so that we can put our guard up. It's a warning. It's a call to be on guard. Good news is that Paul doesn't say, there's a battle. You can't see it. Peace out. Good luck. He says, hey, I'd like to share something with you that will be very helpful in the battle during this time of chaos. During this time where, to some degree, Satan has a limited control over the earth that we're living on. He goes on to explain how Christians ought to fight in this battle. And he talks about what's commonly referred to as the armor of God. Maybe this is something that you're familiar with. Maybe you went to Sunday school and your teacher came in and put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and, and gave you a visual of what this means. But I'm telling you, as I was studying this and reading this, and, and I studied more for this than I than I usually even do, and to be honest with you, it's still a little jumbled in my head. I'm, I'm still wrapping my mind around what this means, but I'm going to do my best to try to present this to you in a way that perhaps you've never heard it before in, in the way that I think Paul intended it to be understood. Here's the armor of God. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, that's today, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, Christians, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And there's three more pieces of armor. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
when, when we sketched this out a couple months ago, I thought to myself, oh, this is perfect. Camp Joel is going to be all, he's going to be going on this one. I'm going to rent a Roman costume. I'm going to get some big old Jesus sandals. I'm going to put a helmet on, and I'm going to give you a visual so you can never forget the armor of God. I was excited about it. Because for 36 years of my life, this is what I thought this passage meant. Put on that gear. Be good at fighting with the gear on. And I'm tempted to come in here today, and guys, you got to put on the belt of truth. you got to stick to the truth. You better memorize some Bible verses. you got to put on that breastplate of righteousness. You need to be righteous. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang out with people that do, etc., you gotta, we got to fit our feet with the readiness that comes to the gospel of peace. So be at peace with people. Don't talk bad about people. Don't gossip. Don't create division. Be kind. And it, it, it's tempting and it's possible to preach through this passage and give you good advice, but not give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a big difference there. See if you can stick with me. While there's no question that Paul, when he writes this, has this picture of a Roman soldier in mind, I don't think that's the only picture he has in mind. I think there's a, a deeper underlying picture that Paul has in mind. Do you remember who Paul was before he became this church planter, pastor, missionary? He was the next up-and-coming star of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee trained by Gamaliel, who was a leader in the Sanhedrin, Paul is an intellectual. He has literally memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Do you know how long those are? He, he, knows, he knows the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. He spent the whole first 20, 25 years of his life memorizing it. He is an intellectual. And when he writes about this armor of God and he, he kind of paints this picture of a Roman soldier, he's got something a little bit deeper underneath it. I think. Because you see, victory in battle with the devil has been secured, accomplished in Jesus Christ. And when we've studied, we've, we've studied the Old Testament here, and I've shared with you that the Old Testament predicts the coming of Jesus Christ, and then the New Testament and the Gospels reveal the coming of Jesus Christ. And when Paul writes to the Ephesians, He's got this library in his mind of all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, things that have been predicted about Jesus. He writes this picture of the armor of God with these in mind. In Psalm 24, Paul would have known the psalm. This is what Psalm 24 says. It says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king, listen to this, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. There are lots of different pictures of what the Savior, what Jesus will be like when he comes. But one of them is of a mighty warrior. Ultimately, the psalmist is talking about Jesus, the mighty warrior, valiant in battle. And then, and then listen to these other ones. I didn't put them on the screen, but in Isaiah 11, verse 5. In talking about Jesus, it says righteous, listen to this, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. 
a little bit further in Isaiah. It's talking about Jesus again, and as it relates to the shoes and the gospel of peace. Listen to this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus, this mighty warrior bringing peace. Isaiah 59, just one more. He put on, listen to this, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head and all three of these and in many more. These passages are pointing to the person of Jesus. There's lots of passages in the Old Testament that describe Jesus as a strong and mighty warrior. And the reason I mention this, it seems to me that the basic elements of the armor of God come from Paul's pen, not simply in light of the picture of the Roman soldier, but in light of his knowledge of the Lord as the divine warrior. I think it's deeper than just strapping on a sword and saying, go fight Satan better. I think it's more important. I think it's more powerful than that. Paul is well-versed in the Old Testament. He's brilliant. He's an intellectual. He's a pastor. He's a preacher. And when he's writing this down, he's essentially saying to the Ephesians and to us, the armor of God is not six more things that you need to do better. The armor of God is Jesus Christ. The armor of God is the work, the person of Jesus Christ. Why would this matter? And how can it help? Let me try to explain. It's possible. It's possible to read this section as though what Paul is simply urging us to do is just be good, be better. Do some more stuff. This is, you know, read it as if it's another list of things that God needs us to do so that we might fight Satan. But wearing the armor here, listen, is not about becoming enough like Christ so that we might defeat Satan. And we need to understand that. It's not about trying to become more like Jesus so we can win. It's about standing confidently in Christ's triumph, which has already taken place over Satan in the cross. I know, I know this is getting theological and it's getting heady, but I'm going to show you how unbelievably practical and important this is for us to change our thinking about this. Jesus Christ is the mighty warrior who has gone toe-to-toe with the devil and being face-to-face with him hanging on the cross. He has triumphed over the evil one, over death, over sin, over the grave. He has already accomplished all of it. If we're playing a game of chess against Satan, we are in a position, if you are a Christian, to say, checkmate, game over. And, and Satan, what he can do in this limited time that he has, he can move his pawn around, he can move the rook around, he can move the knight around, but at the end of the day, it's still checkmate. It's game over. He doesn't win. All of this, this victory that is talked about in the Bible, when you're a Christian, you're victorious. It's because Christ has accomplished everything on the cross. 
I was talking to somebody before church and I said, what is a lie that you just have a hard time shaking? A lie that repeatedly comes after you. And, and they said, it's this, it's this idea that I just, I'm just not enough. That I still need to prove it, earn it, be good enough. Of course Satan would be saying that because he wants us to get in this game thinking that we still need to try to figure this out and earn a little bit more of God's love and protection. And what this is saying is that it's done. It's accomplished. So when the evil one comes to insinuate and lie to you and say things like, I can't believe that you had those thoughts. I can't believe you left that undone. I can't believe that you are as you are, and so on. If Satan comes and tries to whisper that, the answer does not lie in our saying, well, wait a minute, a couple weeks ago, I was doing pretty good. Does that count? The answer does not lie in us saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm not as bad as some of these other people. Can't you see that? I'm not what I used to be. Can't you see that? The answer does not lie in us defending ourselves and saying, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. No, 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 no. When Satan comes and plants these lies in our heads, the answer is Jesus Christ died for me, period. It's as if we're saying, Satan, you took your best shot. You took your best shot for a couple days. You thought you even won. But Christ, because he came back from the dead and resurrected, gave me the chance to do the same. And now I have a new heart and a new life in Christ. And so you lose. Not, not because I earned it, not because I had a good attendance or I stopped doing this or I started doing this. No, that, that's a works-based theology and it's terrible. It's not biblical at all. But if we, if we face these lies that are thrown at us and go, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ died for me. That is, in a sense, putting on the armor of God that is Jesus Christ. You know those little Russian dolls that you kind of open them up and then there's another one and then there's another one and then, and then you get down to the little one? I like to think of myself as the big one who has put on all of this stuff to seem impressive. But Satan breaks that down really, really well. And the truth is that I need to recognize that in my own strength, I'm the little guy. And, and, and what is around me is not my good works or what I've been good at or bad, not, not what I've earned. Rather, it is the armor of God that is Jesus Christ that surrounds me and protects me from the evil one. It's not my works. It's his finished work. It's his finished work. We've got to get the theology right. The armor of God is Jesus. In the New Testament, all six of these weapons are described. That Jesus is described as them. Jesus is the truth. He is the righteousness. He is the one who brings the gospel of peace. He is the object of our salvation. He is the object of our faith. He is the word of God. It is fixing our eyes on Jesus, our valiant warrior, that allows us to what Paul writes. Look what it says in verse, uh, can you throw that up there one more time, Mike? Verse 16 which can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
What does it look like to have a flaming arrow of the evil one come at us? What does that feel like? They're lies. He, he's written about and known as the liar. He's a liar. And every dart that he fires at you, that is on fire coming towards you, that is a lie. Because if Satan can get you to think wrong things, well, then eventually he's going to get you to do wrong things. Everything we do comes from something that we believe or something that we think that isn't right. And he lies to us in many ways, but two categories in particular. One, he lies to us about the world around us, about the circumstances we find ourselves in. These are some examples of things that Satan might be whispering you today, whispering to you today. This is, this is bananas. What is Joel going on and on about? This is ridiculous. You may as well be talking about fairies and unicorns. You have what it takes to live a good life without God. You've been doing pretty good so far. Things are on the up and up. You have what it takes to live a good life without God. What do you need him for? Life is, life is so much more fun without God's involvement. God, God, says, God didn't say this. This is just folklore. There are people out there a lot worse than you. They're the ones that need God the most. You're doing fine. I wouldn't worry about it. I would prop. What is Joel going on about? And then he zooms in. He doesn't just talk about the circumstances around us. He starts talking about us. He starts talking to us. He says things like, I can't believe that you're still doing that. How old are you? You're still doing that? No one could forgive you for that. With you raising them, your kids have no chance. No chance. You should be ashamed of yourself. These are the things that he says. You should be ashamed of yourself. Your marriage, you and I both know it's hopeless. You got no chance. You're never going to be enough. You're always going to be depressed. The mistakes you've made will always be on your record. You're never going to follow through. If everybody else knew what I know about you, they wouldn't like you. And he goes on and on and on and on. And, and, and like I said before, there's no ceasefire. There's no peace treaty. There's no white flag. There's no surrender. From, from the moment that you choose to follow Christ until the end of your life or Jesus comes back, there will be an onslaught of lies being fed to you. And the minute that you kind of shake one of them and say, no, 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 I'm going to believe what God says about me instead of what Satan is trying to whisper to me, he'll come from another angle. He's relentless. He hates you. You used to be his friend, and you have abandoned him, and you have chosen to follow Christ. Friends, the armor of God, this is, this is how we defend ourselves against these lies. If we believe that the armor of God is Jesus, then putting it on means this. When Satan lies to us, 
we can confidently stand in Christ and say, you are a liar. You are a loser. Shut up. This is adult church. I can say shut up, right? Shut up. You're a liar. You're a loser. Get out of my head. I am in Christ. What you're saying about me is in direct opposition to what God says about me. I have a new heart. I have a new life. My eternity is secure. My hope, my trust, my faith is not in you or who I'm becoming. It is in Christ and what he has done for me. And that's it. I'm not fighting your lies, Satan, with like, yeah, but I'm pretty good at the other stuff. No, no, no. The answer to your lies is Jesus Christ died for me. Satan, you want to know how much God loves me? He sent his son to die for me. And so I can confidently stand in Christ and say, you are a liar, you are a loser, get out of my head. It's checkmate. It's checkmate. So, so a great question, a great question to finish this message today. I asked it in our meeting before church this morning, and, and some people just immediately began to open up and share the answer to this question. Here's the question. What is the lie that Satan has recently been feeding you repeatedly? What is the lie that you have been tempted to believe is true? It's not true. But what have you been tempted to believe is true about yourself about a situation that you're in take, take 30 seconds let's not rush out of here think about that for a minute what is the lie that seems like it is on repeat that the enemy of God is whispering to you same stuff you've been battling for the last 10 years for the rest of your life God's not powerful enough to change that as it relates to my self-control in some areas as it relates to you know one thing for me is is man I can just be so kind to you because I only see you for a few minutes a week and then I get with the people that I love the most, my wife and my kids, and I'm, I'm the most unkind to them. Does it make any sense? And Satan will whisper to me, you're never going to change. It's always going to be that way. But today's the day. This is the week that I hide my little doll in the middle of all these layers of the goodness and the work of Christ. 
I stand confidently in the person of Christ. I put on the armor of God that is Jesus Christ. And I say, no, 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 no. I've been given a new heart. I've been given a new life. Satan is a liar. Satan is a loser. And Jesus Christ died for me. And the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of me. So I can change. I can change. It's possible through Christ to change. Today's the day that I step into that. Where I put all my hope, all my trust, and all my faith in the finished work of Christ. I just have to ask everybody, have you ever done that? Have you ever put your faith in the finished work of Christ? Have you ever made a decision to follow Jesus with your life? Have you been resuscitated, given a new heart, given a new life? We're going to sing a song, and while this song is going on, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, I want to give you the invitation to do that. You have essentially two options. You can follow a God who loves you, or you can follow an enemy who hates you. And to me, when it's put that simply, the answer seems so obvious. Who are you going to the end with? A God who loves you or an enemy who hates you? And and, and if you're kind of mulling over that, if you came in today and, and this is making you think, where does my allegiance lie? I just want to invite you, as this song is being played, to consider that question. Who are you going to the end with? And if, listen, if you are a Christian, you have made a decision to follow Jesus, you're in. But these lies are coming and they're coming in hot. The flaming darts of the evil one seem to be relentless. And they're whispering things that aren't true about you. As we sing this song, let this song be the declaration that it's checkmate, that Satan already gave his best shot and he lost. He's a liar and he's a loser. And those lies don't, they're not allowed to occupy space in our heads. Sometimes, if you're anything like me, I just need to sing about that. I need to declare it. I need to say it out loud. And the other thing, if you're anything like me, I need somebody to pray with me. Sometimes we just need a brother or a sister in Christ to put our hand, put a hand on our shoulder and say, let me contend in this space with you. And, and so every week, like we do it every week, but to this week, it's, it's especially important. I'm not saying it is important the other week, but this is a week where the prayer team is back there. I can see them. They're ready. I snuck in on their prayer meeting this morning. I don't know if you know this, but there's a prayer team that prays every Sunday morning at 930. And I snuck in to grab something, and Sierra was praying. He was praying that the enemy would be cast out of this space. I, I heard you say it. You had your eyes closed. You were doing a good job. 